Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. This is John Cripps here with Christopher Funderburg. Hey, Chris. Hi, John. How are you this evening? Are you as excited as me as what I was going to ask in our now deleted intro? I am very excited. In fact, we have a uh, recurring guest, the wonderful filmmaker, film writer, and historian, should I say, Mr. Martin Kessler. How you doing, Martin? Uh, good to be back. Thank you for having me. That's, and why uh, are we having Martin on the show, John? Well, first, I want to just ask Martin, because it's relevant to what we're going to be talking about. Is it all right to call you a historian? Do you feel comfortable with that? I don't know. Like, I wouldn't call myself a historian. I feel like I'm somebody who's... You're certainly someone who's interested, interested in, in history. history. And especially like history through film. I think like if you look at the last couple things I've written for The Pink Smoke, they're all about historical films. And I'm kind of interested in film history but also just history history and how that the depiction of history yes. in film specifically it's a really interesting topic i don't feel it gets talked about enough but we've got a 100 plus page booklet from you for our new patreon exclusive and it is on a very specific film it's on 2006's apocalypto uh this is for those who don't know uh sometime in the mid-aughts mel gibson kind of disappeared into the bush you know movie star Oscar-winning director Mel Gibson disappeared into the jungle and came back with this very unique film, which is about a small village of Mayans in the early 16th century, sometime like 1502-ish, although that's uncertain. That's sort of what we're going to be talking about here, uh, whose village is raided by uh, hunters from a big city and are taken to this, this giant city where they're going to be basically sold into slavery or sacrificed to a non-specific God. Uh, and then it turns into a chase movie when the main character gets away and has to return to the village where he has left his wife, his pregnant wife about to give birth and his son in a well where they are going to drown from rainwater building up within it. Um, this is the film that you're writing about, Martin. Let me ask you just right off the bat, what makes you so interested in this film? I think I have very conflicting and complicated feelings about it. It's not a film, I'm sure some people are going to hear, oh, you wrote a hundred plus page thing about Apocalypto, you must love Apocalypto. And that's not really the case. It's more like I've been waiting for years and years for the Marshall McLuhan to kind of step up and be like, oh, you know nothing of my work about the <laughs> ancient Maya. So uh, it's a little bit like that. Um, I, I feel like there were a lot of misconceptions that are kind of woven into the film, but there were a lot of misconceptions about the film itself. I think in some ways it's kind of a misunderstood film. So I try to walk that tightrope of balancing, uh, you know, the, these are some misconceptions about the film and these are some misconceptions about my history and Mesoamerican history in general and kind of try to navigate that using the film basically as my springboard. I'm. And did you have an interest in the Maya before this movie? This is not this is not a case of you were interested in this film and it expanded your interest in the Maya, or is it the coming from it the other direction? I was interested in Mesoamerican history even before the film came out. Since I was a little kid, I was always interested in these uh, codices, and I'm more interested in the Mexica, the Aztec culture, which was basically the dominant culture at the time the film was set in Mesoamerica. But um, I think the film came out when I was like, I guess 17 or 18, maybe around that age. And that was sort of just the right time to kind of 
encourage some of those interests. And I think it was around the same time I read Gary Jennings' novel Aztec, and around the same time I saw Terrence Malick's The New World, which it's not Mesoamerica, but it's Native American history, and they all kind of swam around in my head. And then I think- Sent you down that path. Sent sent me down that path in a way. It was already kind of an interest in the back of my head, but I think it just came out at the exact right time for me to kind of uh, keep pursuing it and look a little bit more deeply into it. And there were like specific events I can kind of point to, like there was a big exhibit at the Royal Ontario Museum of Maya when I was, I think in my first year of university and I would just go and hang out there for like hours and hours and hours and come back the next day on the weekend and check it out even longer. and that sort of thing. And I read um, this book, 1491, which is about life in the Americas before the arrival of Europeans, the conquest of Europeans. And I found it really eye-opening in a lot of ways and broke a lot of my own misconceptions about Native American history. And I, I think it just became something that I was very interested in and passionate about. But it's something that doesn't really come up in film a lot. Yeah. So looking back now, like I, I mean, one of the things I mentioned early on in the commentary is that I, I kind of wish there was another film I could be talking about to use uh, to discuss some of these subjects and discuss this history. But it's like, well, it's still, it's the one, Apocalypse is the one. And, you know, for a lot of other Mel Gibson films, I kind of feel like there's usually a better alternative to talk about. For did, you have a, did you have a hesitancy to cover a Mel Gibson film in the current climate? Were you almost like, I wrote this, you guys have been afraid of the word, this book. John called it a booklet. You called it a thing in a commentary. Did you have a moment of hesitancy to write a book about a fucking Mel Gibson movie? Uh, absolutely. You know? I'm, I'm still hesitant. I'm, I'm ready to throw it in the incinerator at any moment um yeah of course i mean mel gibson obviously there are a lot of issues with him as a human being <laughs> you know and it, i feel like it's it's basically a fact that he's racist and i try to treat it as a fact in examining this film but i think some of the interpretations of the film maybe being racist or how it's interpreted based on knowing that mel gibson's racist are not necessarily correct and I don't know. It's uh, it's a tricky thing to talk about, of course, but I sort of felt like, well, like, I kind of had to if I wanted to get to all the stuff that I thought was interesting. Yeah. Let me just add real quick, because I don't know how much setup we need for people who aren't super, who didn't live through like when this film came out and just how weird it is. I mean, this is... Pr- pretty handsome mel gibson star of the lethal weapon films oscar winner for braveheart uh he's the just man made, without a face himself yeah he just he's just made passion of the christ which is a gigantic hit but also uh incredibly controversial for its obvious anti-semitism yeah plagued it's, by assertions of anti-semitism that have always been in the background of his career and suddenly took the forefront with that movie right well not even with that film i think like they really took the forefront when he got pulled over for drunk driving and went on that rant. And because I think there were people who were well, kind of to confirm at, the stuff that people were accusing. Yeah. Like people, yeah. I remember at the time to me, it sort of felt obvious, especially the Christ, the not only the anti-Semitism, but just like a lot of other issues that kind of surround that film that I feel like people kind of gave a pass to because it was popular. And, you know, there was talk about it being controversial, but no one, I, I, I mean, some, some people were calling it anti-Semitic even then, but I feel like some critics felt, almost 
duped for not calling it out for being anti-Semitic at the time, uh, you know, because right before Apocalypto came out, just a couple months was that whole episode with Mel Gibson being pulled over and going on his rant about uh, Jews controlling the world and all this. And then I feel like some people kind of projected that, oh, like, I wish I could go back and really punish Passion the Christ on like, hey, look, now there's a new Mel Gibson movie. Well, it was fascinating to me because I always knew him his relationship to his father, who's a famous yes, Holocaust-denying yes. anti-Semite lunatic. And Mel Gibson has always sort of stood up for his and father. huge but Jeopardy not- champion, we should mention. <laughs> stood up for his father, but not defended his father's ideas. He's always been crafty enough to, to separate that. It sort, sort of floated around. I saw Passion of the Christ at a preview screening months before it came out when sort of nobody wanted to touch it. So there was a smaller distributor. It might have just even been a producer's rep uh, uh, putting the thing out. And I saw it with, uh, I was working a film program at the time. I saw it with our executive director, my boss, both of which who were Jewish. And they came out and were like, what the fuck yeah and i thought oh this movie's dead in the water his career's over like this thing is untouchable this thing is obviously overtly anti-semitic uh this is going this is going nowhere and i think that i agree with you that he got a pass on it because it was a massive hit it's sort of the success of it made it so people were afraid to attack it in those terms when the terms of its anti-Semitism were a little more amorphous. Well, but for that era, a little more amorphous where it's sort of like, he's just doing the Bible. Are you saying the Bible's (laughs) racist kind of thing? You know, And, and some of the depictions of it were, you know, it was all just barely in the realm of plausible deniability with a movie star and it was making enough money that no one wanted to go after it. Mm -hmm. When Apocalypto came out, I agree with John, it was very strange. It almost seemed like him wanting to address the charges of him being racist by making this movie about Native Americans from their perspective and making and making an effort to make it accessible on the one hand as an action movie, but completely inaccessible by filming it in their language at the same time. It was sort of an insane project when it When came you would out. assume that he was either going to like t- tackle his dream project given the success of his last uh, effort or like kind of lie low and try to make something really, you know, under the radar. He did neither, you know, he kind of went all in and uh, <laughs> made a really am- ambitious, strange decision to make this movie with a midnight, uh, our uh, Midnight Cowboy reference in the middle of it. I mean, it is just a weird movie. Can I ask you this, Martin? This is a question that does not get uh, brought up in your book. What does Apocalypto mean? Just the title? It's not a (laughs) I've wondered this myself. Uh, I mean, it's obviously referring to like an apocalypse, which I think is kind of what you're seeing on the horizon at the end of the movie. It's sort of alluding to the apocalyptic nature of the Spanish conquest. I, that's how I kind of take it anyway. But it seems like a Maya it? word. It is not a Maya word. <laughs> as far as I can tell, it's a Greek word that means I uncover, yes. which I guess thematically you like could tie the, to um, the film, but the like the opening is sort quote, of how like, heard it translated. What does like it have to do? Yeah. Unveil or re reveal. And, you know, the, the very ending is sort of a, a revelation in that way where you see, like, oh, there's this whole other dimension that's going to come crashing into this world and 
destroy mm-hmm. it. So I, this kind of idea that the Mesoamerican people were susceptible to being conquered because they were already conquering themselves from within, right? That's sort of what the movie posits at the very beginning with its uh, its opening quote, which I, I still think the is Will a Durant very, quote, yeah. the Will Durant quote, uh, which is, I, I think, a really bizarre choice. Like you said, it's a strange film. I think within the context of like, okay, what kind of film would you make if you were going to make a film about the Maya and sort of thinking about all those possibilities? It's still a strange film. I think, you know, if there were like a dozen other big Hollywood projects about the Maya, we'd still say, oh, yeah, like Apocalypse is really weird. <laughs> you know, why, it's, uh, why do you think he chose the post-classic Maya instead of the more obvious choice of the dominant Aztec culture? I, my guess is that on some level it had to do with ignorance. I think people do kind of conflate those cultures. <laughs> it, well, it's true. And, you know, you, you hear him and his uh, co-writer talking about, like, we wanted that juxtaposition between the how civilized the Maya were, the technology, the high culture, with that brutality that we wanted to show in the film. And I think because the Maya are more associated with that sort of peak civilization, all the mathematics, the astronomy, all that stuff, I think maybe it sounded like a good idea at the time, but really, like, if you're going to pick a civilization to focus on at the time of the, at the dawn of the Spanish conquest, like, the Maya aren't really high up on the ladder, I would think. Like, if you're going to make a film about the Maya, like, the obvious choice would be to set it uh, during the classic period or maybe during the terminal classic when things all start going to hell. Like, that's kind of... When, when... a society is conquering itself from within instead of without that period. <laughs> but, you know, the like, the, the Maya weren't even really conquered in the way that the opening quote kind of hints at like you know you sort of read about the Maya conquest and it's like well Spanish would conquer one city they'd move on to the next and then that city would rise up again and like it went on for hundreds of years basically like I was reading about um, just in September they discovered this Maya slave uh, well Spanish slave ship for Maya that they sent to Cuba in like the 1800s that sunk but like I think people don't realize a, that the Maya existed past that famous collapse of the classic period, and then B, that they're still around. And, you know, you're really looking at a conquest that has extended into the 21st century in some form or another. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that when I uh, read the galleys of your book that was um, surprising to me is how misunderstood who the uh, Native Americans featured are, that a lot of the reviews have this sort of dismissive, they're getting the Aztecs all wrong attitude, or the Maya were gone by then attitude. And it was interesting to read within the book about post-classic Maya, and obviously makes more sense in that way. It does. And I think a lot of the discrepancies that people have tried to point out in a film do come from the fact that it is focusing on the post-classic Maya. I think it's easy to sort of look up on uh, Google or look up in a book like, oh, this is what the Maya believed, this is what they did, this is what their life was like, and that's all usually describing the classic period. That's kind of the famous, you know, it's like somebody saying, uh, oh, Greeks didn't have kings, they had democracy, or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Really taking a very specific period of time and kind of assuming that that culture wasn't changing. When you look at Maya history and it's incredibly dynamic the range of beliefs political structures like everything it changed so much over you know a very very long history that i think people didn't realize that yeah by the time you get to the 
post-classic period, and especially by the time of the Spanish conquest, there's a lot of central uh, central Mexican influence in Maya culture, a lot of, you know, Mexica, Aztec influence, but also like from other cultures like Zapotec and Toltec. And there's, you know, it, it gets so complicated. I tried my best to kind of explain it in clear terms, but you know, you have situations where you have a, a post-classic Maya city like Chichen Itza, which was very, very Toltec in its style, in its culture. And like some archaeologists say, well, it's like more of a Toltec city than a Maya city. And if you're using that as one of your reference points for how you're going to depict a post-classic Maya society, then like, yeah, it's going to look way more central Mexican than like something from the Yucatan Peninsula. And especially like you have the Aztec, the Mexica, trying to model their empire on the Toltec or at least who they thought the Toltec were and you know you get all this like cross-pollination and uh, cultural diffusion which went on for centuries and created you know these very intricate relationships where I think you know you, you read some of these reviews even by uh, historians where it's like ah that that's not a Maya thing that's more of a Aztec thing and you sort of say well what does that really mean the more of you know, is it like, well, this is actually true in some cases for the Maya, but not typical. And, you know, if that's the case, is what Apocalypto showing, maybe not necessarily historically incorrect, but just idiosyncratic and weird and pulling a lot of idiosyncratic sources to kind of fit Mel Gibson's vision. That's kind of what I concluded just by looking through and scrutinizing a lot of these details that were kind of controversial in the film. I love this approach that you take in the book, uh, specifically saying, and this is a way to kind of give Gibson and his consultants uh, kind of a fair shake. You say they kind of cherry pick the things that they like from Aztec culture, from Maya culture. Um, and he specifically uh, mentioned, you know, calling also, uh, not calling also Christiana in uh, Topsy Turvy, the Mike Lee movie. I thought of, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark where the map says Thailand when it should have still been Siam in 1936. But those are specific mistakes, like errors yes. on the parts. Mel Gibson, you assert, and I agree with you, is not really making mistakes as much as he's just kind of doing a sort of DJ, you know, remix of history yeah, yeah. and kind of putting things in a hyper typical uh, sort of. Well, like how I, I think he's approaching it, he's sort of building his own archetypes out of things that are not typical, which is sort of a weird backwards way. But I think, like, in that way, you know, and I use this term objectively, not adoringly. I, I think Mel Gibson's a visionary. You know, he's not the sort of typical actor turned director who just like, oh yeah, the, the drama is people yelling at each other. Like, no, he's a real storyteller. And, you know, he obviously has things to criticize, but I, I think like, you know, now nah, there's a vision there and he's obviously trying to fit things into that vision. So I think that's where a lot of the frustration with historians comes from because it's not the kind of flaws you can point to and say like that is incorrect like that is a objective historical verifiable mistake a lot of it is sort of wishy-washy and kind of like ah like that's a weird way to show a Maya village why are you showing it that way like I, I think some of the issues kind of come from that so you have uh, a lot of historians who were asked to kind of review the film or comment on the film and you read it and you sort of think well this is strange they're not really reviewing the history they're reviewing the the art of the film and they're having issues with certain depictions that are artistic and interpreting it or well can i ask you a question interpreting to, the theme and yeah, yeah. To, to expand on this um 
just what we're talking about where, you know, to me choosing the, the post-classic Maya uh, actually expanded my sense of the cultures of the era and the area, that it wasn't monolithic, that there were different kinds of cultures and people. And what you're saying, having the idiosyncratic version of it, to me, expanded my sense of what the, the Mesoamerican cultures in that time period meant, right? Especially reading your book. Yes. It, it expanded it. But don't you think that it's reasonable to say that a film that depicts a culture and people so infrequently shown on screen that that film has a special responsibility to accuracy. You know, isn't it, isn't it kind of advanced studies to ignore the Aztecs, the dominant peoples who are themselves never portrayed to move on to this other thing? Don't you think that, that maybe it has some responsibility to be more generic since that's so infrequently portrayed? I talk about this a lot, actually, in the booklet. Like, uh, part of the issue, I think, comes up from the fact that there are so few films to focus on this. And it's like, to what degree of responsibility do you want to assign a particular film to be generic and represent as much as possible? And like, I thought it was very interesting. I contrasted it a little bit with another film called Chuck the Rain God from the 1970s, which is like a very, very different portrayal of uh, Maya society and it's a contemporary Maya society in the 1970s. But I thought it was funny how much the criticism was very similar where it's like, oh, they don't show the ball courts, they don't show this, they don't show that, like this is terrible. And I was sort of thinking like, you know, to what extent is the film responsible to show all this? And like the conclusion I kind of came to for myself is that this wouldn't be solved by changing anything in Apocalypto so much as creating new films. I feel like really, if anything, the best way to criticize Apocalypto should have been to make another film about the Maya or make a film about the Mexica, the Aztec. And I feel like that kind of didn't happen, you know? So that, that was, um, that was my thinking on it is that really this should have been responded to with other films and it never was. And, you know, here I am writing about it when really somebody should be making a film that shows these things and shows other aspects of that culture, because otherwise, like the biggest budget film to ever focus on this culture in this time period is like a really weird one. Like we've been saying, it's, it's quite an unusual and quite a specific vision that I think a lot of the things that are both positive and negative about the film would be diminished if there were other films to compare it to and saying, well, that film did it better or that film showed a different facet of this life or, you know, and I think really, I do think it was a mistake on, Mel Gibson's part to focus on the Maya of that period, but in a lot of ways that kind of yields some of the most interesting details in the film because it's like, yeah, the, the Maya of that period were sort of influenced by other cultures and it is not typical that these things did exist and, you know, to what extent should art be typical? I mean, often that's boring. Like, I, I think sometimes the most interesting art to approach history is the stuff that focuses on the individualistic, the idiosyncratic, the specific. And I think, you know, it's sort of a weird mishmash of specific and general or what seems general, but really isn't in Apocalypto that in a way I think is, is one of the most interesting aspects of the film. I also think that by choosing the, the post-classic Maya, it's, it, it adds a layer of theme to you have a, if not subjugated people, a sort of fallen culture within a larger culture and that larger culture is about to get 
subjugated and destroyed. Yes. And I think that it adds another uh, layer of interest to it. And again, destroys the, the, the sort of monolith of understanding of the culture that we're taught in very broad strokes uh, here in America. I'm sure the education system is better in Canada, but you learn, snow. you know, <laughs> you know, you just, you, you get caught, you know, you get taught, you know, they call corn maize. And that's about it, you know, and, and then you go maze, on. They call it maze. Well, I'd yeah, like to address and, that question of, you know, what does Mel Gibson owe to the audience? Because I agree with you, Bart. He is a visionary. He is a really great storyteller. My experience watching the film for the first time in 14 years just now was I was surprised, number one, how well I remembered it. Uh, while I was reading the book, too, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that scene really well. And as you go into each scene, you're like, oh, this scene is dumb. I remember this. And it's <laughs> so fucking good like it's so well done mm -hmm. and executed almost flawlessly mel gibson is a just a fantastic action film director uh he does a great job humanizing these characters you know from this ancient culture by making them like good buddies you know like you and your buddies would be you know I mean, and I, I mentioned i love the the use of profanity in the film i think that's one of the most effective aspects of the yeah the potty cause... humor in it absolutely <laughs> yes yeah no he really throws like even again the um midnight cowboy reference everything in it is almost like you know he's tailoring it to a modern audience and you get a sort of sense of like hey i brought back a dead language and have these characters speaking it what the hell else do you need i have actual native americans playing these characters who most of them, you know, were not professional actors. And almost everybody, almost every performance in this film is dynamite. Like, it's great. And so it's just like, he made a movie that works. Yeah. And so the question becomes, you know, um, unless there are other films that are going to depict more specific parts of the culture, does he owe anything other than for it to be a fun thrill ride? I mean, I think you always sort of owe something to history when you're dealing with it through art. I think it's important, these representations, and it's important to kind of consider what they add up to and what they mean and what they're saying, because, you know, that's so much of how we consider history and how we interpret history. And, you know, if this is your one and only encounter with a historic Maya culture, you have to wonder, like, well, you know, shouldn't it be something that gives people a maybe a more accurate impression or a, I won't, well, accurate's maybe not the right word for it, but a more general impression or more useful impression, or, you know, there's all these other issues that could have been addressed through the film that aren't. And I, I think like it is important to kind of consider that. And I, I specifically in the, in the commentary, tried to divorce myself a little bit from the entertaining aspects of the film. I sort of think it's important to kind of take a step back and say like, okay, yeah, this film is fun. It's entertaining. I'm going to put that over here for a second and try to look at everything else and see what we can take away from that. And I think, you know, it, it is important because you're talking about you know, a significant historical culture that's still around that preservation of that culture is not a very high priority for a lot of people and it's yeah. a, a threatened culture. So I think it is important to kind of consider 
how it's being represented. I agree with you. And yeah. I sympathize that there aren't more comparable films. You know, yes. someone with the resources of Mel Gibson could have made a drama, a, a Mayan drama, you know, or yeah. something like that. Uh, and not, you know, what is basically Ewok's Battle for Endor minus Wilfred Brimley, you know, with, <laughs> with the Maya, which this is, it's a chase movie. I mean, you bring it up yes. in your article, you compare it to um, Naked Prey and other yeah. uh, chase films. And that's essentially what it becomes. Um, and the question even is, within that, like, to make like that kind of a movie that could have been made with, I don't know, California surf surfers instead of Mayan characters. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I know. think even within, you know, these references to other films and stuff like that, it's still doing thematically interesting things that are worth considering. Like, I think, to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of the film is how it kind of flips that naked prey formula on its head. I've seen it in other films. I've seen it in like. I don't know what cannibal movie, like uh, trashy films, good films, all kind of riff on that format. But what Apocalypto does that's very different is it's not, you know, the quote unquote civilized man who's dragged off into the wilderness and has to survive uh, quote unquote savages and make his way back to civilization. It's the, the other way around. It's saying like, well, the, the civilized people, that's who is destructive and that's who you have to escape from and that's who's dangerous. The film, it's not really a critique of my civilization so much it is as so much as it is a critique of civilization. And it has this sort of idea that maybe civilization in itself is like a dead end for humanity in some ways. I think that's something that's sort of explored through it. Like, I don't know, Mel Gibson, he makes me think of like a caveman, but not like a the, the stereotypical dumb caveman, but like the caveman who chase animals off of cliffs just to eat whatever they felt like and who conquered the world before the first word was yeah. ever written you know it's like that that intelligent dangerous caveman but uh, you know this in some ways feels like a film made by somebody who is critiquing the idea of civilization and well it's fascinating think, like, ultimately at the end of the movie is sort of like ah, you know maybe you're better off just like hiding out in the wilderness <laughs> because it does it does choose a very traditional narrative traditional city country split where there are people from a small town uh who are uh endangered by the the more urbane, urban, well-heeled, organized people that, that the city country split, especially in uh, political movies, are the innocent small towners who are uh, under siege from the big city folks. This is the, the inverse of the horror film format where city folks go out to the country and are under siege by uh, weird inbred rednecks. And I think, I think that you're absolutely right that he chooses such a traditional narrative format for this story to explicate all of those ideas that are already existing in the culture. And that's one of the things that I, to me feels most strange about this movie is obviously it does the contemporizing that John mentions, you know, of making it feel yeah. like, hey, this is happening nowadays. But this is a movie that's in some ways so intentionally steeped in Native American culture and Maya culture that's trying to go out of its way to cast Native American actors and speak in the original dead language and portray things with a kind of accuracy and thoughtfulness, but it still is beholden. It's, <laughs> it's accurate, but it's also essentially so Western and European in its conception. And I think that that's what a lot of people get tripped up on, that the positive reviews of the movie are like, hey, it's just a rollicking good time. Who cares, yeah. you know, whether the Maya 
did human sacrifices or not. You know, let's not get caught up in that because this is a rollicking movie. And I think that that's what trips it up more than anything. I think if it weren't such traditionally Western narrative artwork, a Hollywood movie, this is a fucking Hollywood movie yes. that people would be willing to cut it the benefit of the doubt in terms of its historical accuracy. Um, yeah, let me just clarify too. When I was saying all that stuff, I was not as a defense. I'm just saying that that's the trick. Like that's what Mel Gibson yeah. does in this yeah. film yeah. to make you not care about those things. I think it's a reasonable it, defense so, of the movie. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think it's it's the first defense of the movie because it's the most reasonable that this movie fucking plays. This movie works exactly what you're saying. It's exciting when it's supposed to be exciting. It's funny when it's supposed to be funny, and it's gripping, and you fucking hate the bad guys and you are cheering for the good guys and yeah, that's, you hate them but that's, then he also went during the chase draws parallels that make you sympathize with the bad guys when the lead guy loses his son yeah it takes his necklace yeah. it's the same way when he lost uh when uh, jaguar paul loses his father at the beginning uh and everything you know that connection that they have that you actually enjoy the group of bad guys as they're attacking as they're chasing him because they are distinguished characters i think that uh, martin mentions that's a kind of john mctiernan trope right to like make the bad guys really specific so you care more about what's happening so it's not just like you know stereotypical boring bad guy characters there's it's it's a it's a well-drawn character piece on both sides i mean that's one thing that came up in some of the negative reviews is oh the film shows the maya as being evil it, it depicts the novel as evil and i think like to me to, the character motivations are so strong it's like no it's not evil people except for maybe the middle eye character that, that the little prince character evil. is evil obviously <laughs> well maybe but I, I think mostly it's showing desperate people it's showing a city yeah. where you know it has an unsustainable population. You see the failing crops, and it, it, the film specifically tries to draw a parallel between the construction of civilization and the undermining of human quality of life and future and all that stuff. You know, so you see them chopping down the trees to make the stucco to build the city, and then you see the crops suffering, and then you see because there's a population that's not being well fed, maybe the people controlling the city are rounding up these prisoners to sacrifice to look like hey we're actually doing something about these issues and you can draw all those connections that i think some people just weren't when they're watching the movie i think yeah. in some ways yeah. well, I was gonna ask aspects, you actually. like for, for a film that's so broad in how entertaining it is and how like oh we're doing a hollywood ass hollywood movie a lot of details are like surprisingly subtle or i think like well that's what i was gonna ask is there's a lot of details like the man praying to the four winds as they enter the city right that the film doesn't elaborate on or even attempt to clarify they're just stuff (laughs) floating around in the background those obviously get lost on an average audience do you think it would have helped the film's claims to historical accuracy if it paused more to focus on those? Or do you think it just destroys the only thing people like about it, which is its narrative drive? I, I think in some ways it would have destroyed the art of the film, the entertaining aspect of the film. And like, I like how a lot of it is uncommented on because it feels, one, very immersive. You just feel like, oh, this. I'm just looking at a city from that time period and like, there's so much detail and you know, you try to focus on something and you want to understand it and you go down these little uh, threads and you say, oh, like that's actually this, or you make these connections or you figure out where the artwork comes from that it's referencing or what people are doing. Like you 
can draw all these connections out of it, which I love doing. But at the same time, I think it also lets the film get away with certain things by not giving it too much context, because if it gave it too much context, you might say, well, that's not right. Or, you know, because it is showing a sort of amalgam Maya city and Maya civilization, you know, there, it's a city that never would have existed. It's drawing all these different little elements from Maya culture at, you know, in some cases, different points in time or different geographic locations and sort of tying them all together in this presentation that I think partly holds together because it feels like, well, you know, this could have happened or it could have been like that, or it's an impression, you know, and in some ways I think like, it's an impression that it gives you of my life more than a, uh, you know, historical exploration that I think could have explored more and could have explained more, but would have been maybe dull and out of date in a decade. You know what I mean? Rather than having yeah. a very specific uh, thing that he wants to pinpoint in history, he's just kind of giving that theme that the more you develop, the more dehumanized yes. becomes. It, it's all um, just becomes part of the, the texture in a way. And I, I think like partly it's also just a reflection of the kind of research that they were doing that wasn't so much in trying to construct a Maya city at a specific time period that looks a certain way. It's more like, okay, we're gonna pull this from this city and pull that from this time period and just put it together in a way that gives you some that you get the idea you get the you idea get the, yeah i feel like that, that must have been at some point the conversation is like you know we and it's of course that's filtered through mel gibson so it's mel gibson's idea of my civilization which you know i think is is uh, open to critique but i think that's kind of one of the things that's sort of interesting about it is how these ideas are interpreted and you know because things are left open-ended like you know you can say well maybe the city it's doing this because of this. And I, I keep calling it the can't say it didn't happen or couldn't have happened. <laughs> you know, the, the historian Richard DeHanson kind of mentioned this in a, I think it's a Los Angeles Times interview where he's like, oh yeah, Mel was asking for like a reason to do this. And I said, well, like, uh, it didn't really, I, I guess it could have happened. It, it, it could, I guess- Prove it didn't. I can't say it Were didn't happen, there? which is sort of, well, but I you know, think that's a necessary element of, of yeah. fiction is the suspension of disbelief. And I always think about, you know, the, the, um, in the intro to the screenplay for Raising Arizona, Raising Arizona and Evil Dead 2 came out on the same day. And the intro to that screenplay is Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers in conversation. And they're making fun of the plausibility of Evil Dead 2, right? Like yes. that woman gets her head knocked off and then she's dancing around and he goes, well, what about you? You have a guy on a motorcycle coming out of hell, you know, driving and he shoots a lizard from 400 yards. And they're like, well, if everything fell right, that could have happened. Yeah, if it fell right, that could have yeah. happened. <laughs> but a lady dancing without a head, that couldn't have happened, right? And I think that this movie has a lot of like, if everything yeah. fell right to it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in me personally, in, in a movie, if an astronaut shows up in this movie, I personally would have been like, huh, okay. Like, I don't, <laughs> I just would have gone in any movie, wherever they go, I go yeah. with the movie, you know, and there's lots of interesting films. I think the, you know, Sargosa manuscript or something that certainly float throughout time and space in that way. You know, mm -hmm. Boonwell is my favorite filmmaker. Obviously, I'm not going to like you know about sure. that kind of stuff um but let me the, let me my, well but i was going to oh, go ahead, this is right. leading to a fucking question john <laughs> but 
do you, Martin, feel like that a lot of the problem with this movie is that period pieces inherently have some burden of being historically accurate? Don't you think that if you choose a period piece like this, that you give up some amount of suspension of disbelief because you're having to build a world from the ground up as a filmmaker? Isn't this sort of a problem of Mel Gibson's own making? In a way, I think it is, and it's something that's come up in some of the other historical films I've talked about. And to me, it's interesting how different filmmakers approach history, because they, I think I mentioned in the piece, it's, I don't think film is good at giving you a history lesson. I think it's good at certain other things with history, but it's more experiential. It's, you know, it's a more artistic experience. So I'm interested when somebody like, uh, Augusta Roa Bastos or an Alexi Germán has their own, not just interpretation of a historical event, but a take on history and how it should be presented. Or, you know, even something like uh, the film Attentat, which, you know, the filmmaker almost sort of steps back and said, well, like, you know what, the history itself is full of enough symbolism and metaphor and art. I'm not going to try to put my auteur stamp on it. I'm going to step back and just try to tell it as directly as possible. And trust that the history itself is the art and you know I, I think like these issues do come up I think no matter what time period you're looking at and in a way it is a lot of issues of Mel Gibson's own making but I think also the film does hold together in certain ways better than maybe people want to give it credit for I think you know there's certain details that can fit if you let them, or you know, if yeah. you go down that like can't say it didn't happen, or if it all fell into place, like, I, you know, I thought it was interesting. I try to be generous to most critics of the film in the piece because I think like, yeah, not a lot of people know. It's not we're not dealing with common knowledge for a lot of this stuff, so I can't really get like angry at anyone. But the one piece I kind of, you know, had to throw a little bit of shade at was the YouTube video about about Apocalypto what's it called? The something historians. <laughs> Cinema historians, I'm sure. It, well, uh, no, it was something like that, but, uh, the movie anyway, dudes history. YouTube. It was channel. just like, it's the first one that comes up when you type apocalypto, it's got like four and a half million views. Yeah. But like, I thought it was interesting how they're like, Oh, what we're supposed to, you know, there's smallpox here, but we haven't seen any Europeans. How dumb do they think we are? And it's like, no, if you actually go back and look at the history, this is, more of what you'd expect than the stereotype of history or the, you know, the kind of like textbook idea that people might get without really digging into it and understanding how events unfolded. And I think like there's certain instances of the film actually, you know, maybe being subtle to the point where certain connections that you're supposed to make maybe went over <laughs> some people's heads. And I, I think, you know, the smallpox thing is, is one of them. I think for me, what it, said when I was watching the film is like, hey, Europeans are already on the continent. Like the, the clock is ticking. It's only a matter of time before everything you're seeing is going to end. And it's done in a way that feels more like foreshadowing or feels more like it's just supposed to be there if you notice it or, you know, have it in the back of your head. But it's like, yeah, the, the Europeans are already, you know, in Guatemala or yeah. Mexico. And I mean, it's to like, me, it's a matter always, of time before those ships show up. And I feel it like- It always you know, read that way to me. Yeah. It always read that this isn't supposed to be the mythical first contact that happens. Yeah. You're supposed to be getting indicators throughout yes. that that this is 
very late in the game yeah, and that, I, I and that stuff is already actually. already falling yeah, yeah. talk I, a I little about like, the date about your how you research the date sure i mean the, the smallpox that already kind of puts it a little bit late like um you know, some people think, oh, it's the first contact. It must be maybe uh, Columbus um, during his fourth voyage. He kind of ducked around Honduras and a ship came out that he traded with. And some people think maybe it was Maya that he was trading with, but they don't really know for sure. So some people think that might have been the first contact between Maya and Europeans. But there were, uh, I think there was like a shipwreck with, or shipwreck survivors from Cuba and then Cortez showed up and um, you know, that all came before smallpox really hit the continent. And then if you look at, okay, well, smallpox was pro mostly introduced further north in, some, in uh, central Mexico, you know, where the Aztec Empire was and hit Tenochtitlan. That's at this point in time. Uh, and then Cortez actually had um, a, a, <laughs> an unsuccessful invasion into the Yucatan Peninsula that uh, like it doesn't match up at all what you see with on screen. It's uh, <laughs> he had a land army. It was mostly Native Americans in his army. Like I, I think that's another thing that people don't realize when you're talking about uh, history of the Spanish conquest is like it wasn't just like 300 Spanish with like their steel and they chopped up all the natives and they won. Like it, it wasn't like that at all. You know, it was really uh, not a civil war, but it was turning a lot of the states that had been subjugated by the Mexica, by the Aztec's empire against them. And, you know, it was sort of presenting an opportunity for states that had been paying like very hefty tribute and tax to this uh, empire to kind of get one up. But you know, like really, I think ultimately you sort of look back and say, well, that was a deal with the devil making a deal with the Spanish. But I, you know, I, I sort of addressed that also like the, I feel like a lot of the agency and it really just the history of the Native Americans in Mesoamerica at that time just gets blurred and fudged and not really focused on. Yeah. Yeah. But well, anyway, it's also it's important to, to remember too, especially with the history of disease where we don't have good history for a lot of this. So a yes. lot of it is thumbnailed how things spread and where they went. It's only recently that there's been sort of historical agreement in North America that when the Europeans started to colonize in earnest, that some epidemic had already hit before yeah. they were there and that there were cities that were at like 10% capacity yes. that were able to be conquered easily and at the time it wasn't registered as there's the city is wildly underpopulated because a disease of some kind just wiped it out you know yeah and I think that 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 kind of uh, criticism of what's possible or not possible, you know, the history is not there, you know, and the history yeah. was written by Europeans for centuries who had no interest in understanding the actual history. Or, you know, their history that they want to twist to support conquest and support colonization and you try to, even today, like I noticed a lot of people are still very uncomfortable with um, you know, what they call like high count estimates of the population of the Americas. You know, people get really antsy when you start talking about like, oh yeah, like more than 90% of everyone died in this relatively short period of time. Like, you know, and people think of the smallpox blankets and stuff like that, but that's much, much later. Like we're talking, you know, the initial contact, um, once it was introduced, I, I compared it a little bit to the COVID situation happening right now, because I think people don't really understand that, like, yeah, somebody who contracted smallpox, they could 
travel and spread it to all these different people and they wouldn't even know they were sick. And then by the time the first symptoms start showing up, like everyone's going to die basically. And in some places you did have like 100% mortality rate. And I used some specific examples in the piece that I referenced, but you know, like to me, it was so haunting these descriptions of the conquistadors and the, some of the Europeans who would like arrive at a city or arrive at a, at a village and everyone's dead. It's just like they could see that the smallpox already hit. I've, like probably the most famous recorded example, it's the Inca empire where it's really easy to trace how smallpox outstripped the conquest of Europeans and hit early and that threw the whole political structure into like a huge mess and created a civil war and like after this pandemic and war like that's when the conquistadors showed up and conquered everything so like i i think like that was actually very common this um spread of smallpox and other similar diseases there's some diseases we're not even quite sure what they were today but um that these diseases outstripped the pace of the europeans i think it like it wasn't this situation where, oh, Europeans showed up, you catch smallpox, you die. It's like, oh no, these, in some ways, these societies were very well connected. You know, they didn't have horses or anything like that, but people traveled and, you know, over a period of time, these diseases could move from one city to another, one village to another, and were very, very widespread very quickly. Yeah, and that's part of the... um... Oh, I'm sorry. And I think that's part of Mel Gibson's point is that the disease is disembodied from the Europeans, that the disease is something that spreads on its own. To me, that detail felt like what you're saying, like a point the movie is making rather than uh, a mistake it has made, that it's trying to talk about something with that detail. Yeah, as as both brought up, the scene with the smallpox and the little girl is almost a supernatural scene in itself. I mean, it's this girl basically cursing the guys with a prophecy and, you know, telling them about the uh, eclipse that's about to happen and everything. I I don't think I was as blunt as to point it out, but it's like, oh yeah, the foreshadowing of the Europeans is through the smallpox and she foreshadows the plot of the movie. Like it's that exact same moment. Yeah. That's like a visual representation that she actually becomes a prophet. But let me ask you this though, because it leads into uh, one of those uh, subtle moments that you're kind of talking about, about the movie that I remember coming up uh, when the movie came out in reviews and you bring up in your book uh, and is a very interesting kind of aspect. It's the solar eclipse, which happens, right? And the whole right. thing of the sacrifices where they say, oh, um, Kukulkan or whatever God's supposed to be. is Kukulkan or uh, Kukulkan, yeah. He's got a bunch sated. of different names. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they say it's sated, so we're going to yeah. stop. Watching it this time, I really wondered, what is Mel Gibson trying to tell us here? Is he trying to tell us, because we all know of uh, the astrological calendar and how the Mayas you know, supposedly knew, could predict when these mm-hmm. eclipses would happen, are the ruling elite of this city using it specifically as a way to manipulate and trick the the populace to think that they actually have some direct connection to their god and is that sort of the whole point of this whole show they knew that they were going to end it as soon as the eclipse came up and say okay no more sacrifices today folks or as suggested by sort of their oh geez what do we do now oh the god is sated are they just kind of improvising at the moment because i think the implication if they are specifically saying uh, trying uh, try to manipulate people. That's Bill Gibson basically saying religion is a sham, or at least non-Christian religion is a sham, and really making that a point of the film. 
which you could in one hand say, oh, except for Christ, when the Christianity comes well, out. Well, but, he's, this but keep in mind, his background is rabidly yes. anti-Catholic. Yeah. He's yeah, but, rabidly, yeah. he's the Catholic <laughs> sect. He hates the Christian church. That's part of what his dad's whole deal is. I, I think that's where that people assumed it was in the in the showing up of Europeans at the end to punish, quote unquote, the wicked Maya, that like people assume that traditionalist Catholic background kind of translated. And I think it's more in that depiction of my religion, especially like specifics of my religion, you know, like it's, he's, he, I think like the only kind of religious stuff that he sort of gives a check mark to in the context of the film is the sort of vague prophecy and spirituality. And it's almost like, I, it could be any God watching over him, but like the actual pageantry and ritual and the people on top, I think like he's, to me, making a, a sort of multifaceted metaphor, but a lot of it I think is targeted at Catholicism. I, I think that's right, actually. And you even get a sense like with that high priest, I'm like, mm. there's just this like disdain for a guy in a big hat. With too I mean? much jewelry on. With too much jewelry on. Like you can just feel that like detestment from it. And I do think like it's not a coincidence that that eclipse happens when it does. I think like you look, there's a great moment where again, maybe this is subtle enough that it went under some people's noses, but you know, the king of the city and the uh, high priest, they just give each other this little like sly look when the eclipse mm -hmm. happens, like, phew, like, <laughs> you know, now all these people, they know we're in charge, you know, we were using all these sacrifices to like feed uh, Khan. except I'm, really it's, it's more like a ritual that you would expect to see for uh, Huitzalipotli, the Mexica's patron deity uh god of war like uh I, well another name for kukul khan in um, a different maya language is uh, google mats which i thought was adorable but <laughs> that <laughs> that adorable. Like, that's a cute name for like a giant dragon monster <laughs> but, um you know and i think like just i tried to pick apart a little bit more in this most recent draft the imagery that's actually worked into the summit of the pyramid i'm like that's weird there's a lot of like Chuck the rain god imagery worked into this summit like you know those um assistants for the high priest wearing those masks like that's masks of chuck you know with the curled up nose and the tongue coming out this sort of reptilian thing but chuck is a rain god and like has no interest in human hearts you know this it's like a very unrelated thing but i think except like, that I rain think, figures into the story and it feels like mel gibson yeah. said rain rain god storms right, right. big thing well, do something with that but i think like he was probably he had like a, you know, the production design book of all like historical Maya references and probably picked out like, yeah, pick that one. He looks scary. That yeah. was sort of my feeling. It's like, you know, he's trying to communicate danger and the ferocity and it kind of it, like, again, in the most recent draft likened it to the Moloch worship that you see in films like Metropolis. And I think he's trying to depict that religion's role in civilization as a means of control is sort of this hollow empty thing. And I think like, it's actually, in some ways I actually kind of agree with the religion is a sham angle, but it's just like for non-Maya to make that point about a Maya religion is like he's such a, I'm like, oh, like it, it kind of grosses me out at the same time. Like I, I don't think it necessarily had to have been respectful, but it's like, you know, you couldn't have made this point when you made the Jesus movie, like, you know, and I, I think it's that sort of blind spot that, that I think bothers me, but 
I never saw the Jesus movie. There might be a fat little prince in there. I'm not sure. (laughs) There is a fat little prince. Or a fat king, yeah. Because I feel like Bill Gibson... The best depiction of Barbarous who comes out literally goes... Barbarous is a monster. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a ghoul. He comes out (laughs) out and literally goes... (laughs) (laughs) It's unbelievable. I have no it's no problem a, believing that Mel Gibson, you know, and his physical perfection has that classic like fat guy equals evil thing, which is funny because now he's going to play what evil Santa Claus in a movie or what, what's happening? Yeah, no, no, in a movie called <laughs> a movie the called Fat Man. The Fat Man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I, I think also the Christ, what? Oh my God, Barbarous! Like <laughs> while we're still on this, I got to say, like it, it's such a ridiculous like caricature like it's, a, it's, I imp- think, it's impossible to believe it's in an actual no, no. movie well, i always wanted like if I, I thought like i don't think i ever would but if i ever made a, a jesus film the way i would do it is like yeah you got jesus of nazareth this like religious zealot on one side and you have like poor jesus barabbas and his mother comes out and she's like he just made a mistake he's not like this like blaspheming cult leader like please please he just made a mistake let him go and like the people get i I would try to like completely humanize it and make it like the obvious choice that like yeah why would you pick this like poor young kid who made a mistake barbarous to die when there's this like religious lunatic who's threatening your way of life on the other side i would try to flip it around but yeah i don't it, it's very ridiculous when you see fashion of the christ but i was just I going to, to say as far as the the religion angle is that i think people do see the passion of the christ mel gibson so heavily associated with catholicism mm-hmm. and christianity that i don't know how common knowledge it is that his dad belongs to this anti-papal catholic sect that mel gibson clearly subscribes to in some way and i agree with you that that scene in apocalypto reads to me it never read to me as a critique of a you know long since uh uh, archaic uh, maya religion Mm -hmm. and more a very thinly veiled swipe at the catholic church you know it just reads that way to me so clearly everything about the the uh the pageant of the ritual reeks of Catholicism yeah. more than it does uh, standard uh, atavistic mystical uh, type depictions of of religion. Again, yeah. this film is and so think, inherently Western and European yes. that it's easy to read it that the way. Young Mel Gibson sat through Catholic uh, ceremonies and imagined a guy with a net catching heads underneath <laughs> the uh, pulpit. Well, like I think that's also why the one thing that I thought was really weird kind of looking at it now is how some details are so specific, like we were, like we were saying, but not the religious details. The religious details are very vague. It, it, that's one of the kind of startling things that kind of stands out. And I think it's because like Mel Gibson didn't really care. It's just like, ah, I'm just using this as a metaphor. I'm using my religion as a metaphor for what I want to say about religion, you know, capital R religion's role in society, in civilization. I think that's kind of what he was interested in. I think, like, he, he didn't really care about the depiction well, of my religion. that's a theme of know. the corruption of power structures are, well, in all of yeah. his movies, you know? Yeah. It's the, that, the Braveheart thing. And I, I try to mention that, like, it, it does fit into this larger framework that you see throughout his films. And it's like, it's so clearly what he's doing that... It's like, oh, like, yeah, that, that's just what he was interested in and the religious aspects of Maya life, which I think like are really some of the best documented and some of the best, uh, some of the, the aspects of my life that are still surviving even today in some respects. Like, you know, we were talking about 
Kukul Khan and Chak and like, you know, you could probably, you might not have an easy time finding them, but there's probably a handful of people who still genuinely deeply believe in these gods, even today, you know, I mean, that's one thing that the Chak the Rain God film was trying to get across. It was sort of on the cusp of disappearing, but it's not quite gone yet. And yeah, I started to yeah. walk myself back mid-sentence and change it to archaic rather than dead. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I know I'm not like, I'm not going after you or anything. I just, I'm trying to explain because I think people don't necessarily realize this. And it's something that I think the film doesn't really help to get across. It does make it look like some archaic, weird cult thing. And I, I think like even even talking about it as a critique of the role of religion in society, I think like it wasn't necessarily the role that religion had in Mesoamerican societies, even the Mexica, the Aztec society, I think, you know, you hear about like them sacrificing thousands and thousands of slaves and it's like, well, they weren't, they weren't like a mad death cult hell bent on murdering any person they could get their hands on. They were like a commercial pragmatic empire. And I tried to like give some context to this idea and I think that that was one of my big goals with the commentary is to give context to a lot of things that either don't have them in the film or that people don't have that context to read the film with. So, well, I think you're definitely on the right road when you talk about seeing this film as metaphor and how Mel Gibson is really trying to say more about Mel Gibson than he is about the ancient Maya. <laughs> sure. um, one of the things that I found interesting watching it this time was the bully uh, warrior, the the jerk calls Mid-Lai. jaguar paw yeah middle calls jaguar paw almost is like the yeah. taunting name nickname he gives him and i thought what a lame goddamn nickname i mean jesus can't think of anything better than almost and then i found out that was a name that mel gibson was taunted with when he was a kid growing yeah. up well and jaguar Paw is such a like maybe not mel gibson surrogate but definitely like mel gibson how i think he must picture himself in his head surrogate like there's so much of Braveheart and Mad Max and like a lot of these characters that he's played kind of wrapped up into I know Braveheart's not the name of the character but you know it is it's, I, Bill, I Bra- like, it's Bill Braveheart it, it comes across so much like you know if Mel Gibson were 20 years younger in my he would be playing that role like it's so clear to me you know yeah. and sometimes you, you like put the, the, the blue paint yeah. that this the sacrificial guys get put on them is a Mel Gibson touch because you know He's blue painting Braveheart too for no reason, <laughs> except he just thought it looked cool. Like, where he really wants us to know who the heroes are. They're the guys in blue. <laughs> He's a Giants Which, fan, apparently. I know some people say maybe that some Maya really did that. Some people say no. So that, that's another thing too that's really hard. Is like there's not a lot of like concrete information to fall back on. Like it's amazing how little confidence you can say anything about historic my life like i feel like i I spent half the the length of this commentary kind of covering my own ass in a lot of ways being like yeah maybe and some maya did this and and, 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 you know it it gets very sort of not wishy-washy but it's like even just within my lifetime i've seen the thinking on certain aspects of my life change quite a bit or people saying like yeah, yeah the, the Maya were capable of war, but didn't really commit wars. They were peaceful people. And it's like, oh, no, now we know they were having wars all the time with each other. We find all these uh, obsidian arrowheads and this and that. Like, you know, the thinking can sometimes change very drastically and is sometimes in conflict with different 
archaeologists, historians, Mayanists, whoever, you know, who are debating these issues and who find... And bringing their own, yeah. their own perspective and uh, uh, to what the Maya yeah, were and of like the noble Native Americans and the peaceful... Consultant. Yeah. yeah, but in the, in their idea of these people were peaceful or they were scientifically yeah. advanced and they have a vested cultural interest in promoting those ideas as well. It's something you see constantly, especially with Westerners studying Native yes. American culture of projecting super hard their best qualities onto them and trying to make them not resemble anywhere else in the world in human yeah. history, you know? And I, I tried to deconstruct that maybe a little bit and try to frame some of these civilizations in reference to certain European civilizations in a way that I hope doesn't come across as like Mr. Eurocentrism. I'm, I'm hoping that it comes across more like these things shouldn't necessarily seem exotic. You know, there are distinct yeah. aspects of these cultures, but I don't think they should be understood as like, oh, they were like these weird, like ripping hearts out of people all the time. Well, it's a kind like, of Orient. It's a kind of Orientalism to view any culture as primarily good. You know what I mean? Sure. And and it's it's a dehumanizing thing. The noble savage I, I uh, so. archetype is is unquestionably dehumanizing to me. And I think that that frequently a lot of these cultures end up being uh, projections in a way it's, of, it's sort of, of a, outsider beliefs. The, the flip side of that demonization that you saw when Europeans first showed up. And I think, I mean, you know, some of the people I talk about, like real historical people like um, Malinsi and I sort of reference who played a key role in the downfall of the Mexica. Like I, you know, I tried to discuss this idea of agency and, you know, these were people with their own human motivations and you're trying to understand that, you can't just frame it into that like uh, exotic attribute one value or one trait to like an entire, not just civilization, but many civilizations and many nations. And it's like, it's to me, it's completely crazy how people will sort of homogenize all these different cultures that were in conflict, that were varied, that were, you know, but um, Malinsian, like, I thought it was a little bit sad. They just took down her statue again, <laughs> but um this idea that like oh she's the ultimate traitor she betrayed her people and it's like well you know take a step back who were her people like it sure wasn't the mexica like you know she was a slave and she she wouldn't have necessarily seen herself as being any more mexica than she was spanish and you know she hooked up with the spanish and saw an opportunity there for uh something that she could take advantage of and i i think like it's dumb to sort of reduce a very complicated history into like, oh yeah, like there were good guys and bad guys and traitors on both sides. Like, you know, it sort of yeah. seems like such a dumbed down way of trying to understand these things. Like there were so many, I, I think conflicting motivations. And to me, that's more interesting to represent through art than the sort of like, I, I call it the, the moral logic interpretations that you see some people have of Apocalypto and like, especially of history. I think it's very frustrating to see history kind of like oh what you think people is, deserve that to happen or like you know it, isn't it feels, that the tricky right. thing of apocalypto is that it has the black and white moral logic of a hollywood film yes but completely gray historical logic yes and i think that's what throws people off about it that, that's what's fascinating about it and it's 
interesting, like in the ways that Mel Gibson, for instance, subverts that uh, noble savage trope or, you know, how he can kind of show different facets while still having that very streamlined Hollywood good guys, bad guys kind of formula. It is interesting that it has such a specific moral position and not and a very shaky historical one at the same time. <laughs> also very true. It's, it's a strange combination. And again, we've said it a few times, but like it's a strange film. And um, I guess, you know, that's maybe one reason why people might want to check out this commentary is to kind of work through some of that strangeness. <laughs> I, I definitely wanted to for myself. And it's like, I felt like I'd been waiting for somebody else to write this and just it hadn't happened yet. So I guess I had to do it. I don't know. <laughs> Let me ask you, Martin, moving forward, what do you think it would take to have another Maya language period film? And that, would you think it would have to be another action, rollicking action Hollywood film funded by a wildly successful movie star? Or do you think they could actually get together and have like historical consultants involved and make something that really says something about the period? I mean, I'm not even sure you have the chance of having the eccentric Hollywood star who made a pile of money going off and making it because like, you know, we're not really in a star system anymore. (laughs) And it sort of feels like that that's not really likely. I think where I might expect to see a film about my civilization crop up at some point is maybe from Mexico or Guatemala, if there's sort of a renewed interest in this culture. Like, I mean, I've heard from a lot of people saying that it's not it's not valued in modern day Mexican or Guatemalan society necessarily, but there's people kind of pushing for a research interest and my history and sort of a cert. I mean, I thought the time for that to happen would have been like around all the stupid 2012 end of the world (laughs) nonsense, but like that didn't really produce a lot of films. Like not a lot came out of that, but um, hopefully like I, I would love to see, a Mexican produced or Guatemalan produced, you know, even if it wasn't on that Hollywood scale, just a historic film. You know, I think probably what's most likely, if you're going to see uh, Epic, is it's probably showing the time of the conquest that always seems to be kind of a popular subject is the clash between Europeans and Native Americans in the early 16th century, because it's, you know, such an inherently dramatic period. But I would really, really love to see, you know, films about the Maya and the Mexica and the Mixtec and Zapotec and Toltec and all these people before Europeans showed up, you know, I, th- I think that would be interesting to tell stories that aren't just anchored to European narratives in the way that like, oh, it, their history is defined by us showing up. And I feel like that's really something, you know, at the time you're not really conscious of, but I remember like in school, like the way our history was taught, it's like, oh yeah, Canadian history starts with Europeans showing up. It's like before that there was no history. You know, there's uh, this idea that Native Americans were living in uh, prehistory and it's not true at all. You know, there's so much history there and so many interesting stories that I think I would love to see that tapped into more. I talked about like there's, um, there was an <laughs> author who won, uh, I think it was either Pulitzer Prize or some big prize for their like history of Native Americans in the 1970s and it's like and they produced nothing of worth and uh, the, you know they lived these like brutal existences with no hope for the future and then like Europeans showed up and it's like you know I think even though people kind of toned that down and pacified and wrap it up in the kind of politically correct language of like 
ah yes the peaceful people and stuff you still don't realize like you know there's a history there a whole history that is basically completely ignored today you know i like i love you know sometimes the conflict between these cultures is so fascinating to me and i i want to picture it like a film and it's uh it's frustrating that there isn't one. You know, I was reading about like the, the Mexicas conquer of the Mixtec and how the Mixtec originally didn't want to give the Mexica tribute, and then the Mexica cracked down hard on them and strangled the Mixtec kings and forced all the noble women and children into slavery and asked them for even more tribute. It's like the, these incredible dramatic episodes, or uh, you know, all these uh, personal histories that they can kind of assemble just through dates and so much of its guesswork. It's like. Oh yeah, the people from Teotihuacan arrived at this city on this date, and also on this date the king died. So we think maybe the king got killed by them. But you know, it's all just guesswork for a lot of it. But I, I would still love to see artists kind of work to try to fill in those gaps because that, to me, seems in some ways more responsible than like, you know, I mean, you don't want a historian to try to fill in those gaps incorrectly because that stuff tends to stick around, and you don't want just that kind of shrug up in the air of like, we don't know. Like I think art in a way, it gives you a chance to present a vision for what happens between those gaps and connect those dots. And, and you know, you can always critique art. It's easy to kind of say, well, you know, maybe we should do this or that or make another film or make another painting or whatever that kind of deconstructs the previous work of art, but you kind of need to have that genre or that body there to begin with. And like, you know, there's a couple there's a couple Mesoamerican films or, you know, modern day depictions of Native Americans who are the descendants of these uh, great civilizations, but it's it's so kind of limited and you, you really wish there was more. And I ask you this, do you think it's possible to make a more historically accurate film about this time period and people than Apocalypto? Or do you think that every film is going to have to uh, inherently invent things or risk being devoid of interesting details? Uh, I, I think there's obviously some details you could probably you could probably portray more specifically. I think in some ways Apocalypse was vague with certain things, but I think it depends what facet of the life you pick to portray. I think like it would be a mistake to say, okay, we're going to do the Maya movie and show all of post-classic Maya civilization. Like, I think that would be a huge <laughs> mistake, you know. But the, I think, Maya, like, the Maya movie by Freeberg and Seltzer. You know, like date movie and epic movie. That, right? <laughs> the Maya, Maya movie. <laughs> you know, but I think like, if you're going to do something about like, okay, let's, you know what, we're going to do this awesome sports movie set 500 years ago and focus just on the ball game and just put in all the historical information you can, you would still have to make certain gap you would still have to fill certain gaps and make certain jumps and tie things together in an artistic way and still tell a story, but it's like, it would make more sense to just focus on one particular thing. And I, I think like sometimes the, the criticism can feel like, oh, we, we just want this film to include more and show more and do more. And it's, you know, it, it can be a little bit like somebody, I don't know, with Apocalypto especially, it feels like somebody being like, you know, Lethal Weapon doesn't really show enough accountants. It sort of feels like, well, that's not what the film's about. Like, you know, I get that it sort of glosses over a lot and, you know, you can only show a tiny sliver of any civilization in a, you know, 
two plus hour period. But I think like the fact that Apocalypto is in a way a film about the idea of civilization, it, it makes sense for that particular film. But that's is it as extreme? Would, be, would it be as extreme though as like if they made a Lethal Weapon era movie two hundred or three hundred years from now and showed them like drawing on each other like in the wild west or something like that with the lapd hey man, you can't say English it didn't happen <laughs> can't say it didn't happen you know what i mean <laughs> so martin thanks man thank you so thank much you. we've talked a lot about this but i just want to stress that we have not even scratched the surface this is an incredibly in-depth very well-researched and entertaining and fun thing that you've written for us book the word is book and if you would like to read this book we don't pitch our patreon very often on these podcasts but if you subscribe for just two dollars in addition to all of the other benefits you get like early access to the podcast john cribs commentary for i'm dangerous tonight mar uh, marcus penn's video uh, diaries from the toronto film festival everything we do you also get a copy of martin's book a digital download available in pd or various e-publication forms. And we are so excited to publish it and get it out there into the world and have people to read it. With Go art by Patrick Horvath as well. Yeah. Yes, we cover art by Patrick Horvath, by the great Patrick Horvath. And we're just really excited to get it out into the world. I, I you know, this is not necessarily self-promotion to say you should read this book. It's great. The reason we're doing this is because we love Martin's writing. We love the concept. We loved this idea. And we just wanted to make sure it gets in front of as many people as possible. Absolutely. Thank you for doing it for us. Thank you for coming on the show. Chris, I agree with everything you've said. I, uh, we've talked to Martin just now as fans, you know, we love his work and are super honored to have him do this and be able to put it out there for people to read. Go read it. I would say even if you absolutely despise Mel Gibson as a person, well, especially if you despise, if you despise him, Mel Gibson, I, yeah, as a, I as really a filmmaker, don't want to be mistaken for being like a Mel Gibson apologist. Yeah, yeah. Your greatest think... revenge on Mel Gibson will be reading this book. <laughs> oh my, my! My girlfriend said, "Are you going to send a copy to Mel Gibson?" I said, "Like no way." <laughs> it's like the first couple of paragraphs. I'm like, "This is how racist Mel Gibson is." <laughs> but, but also, but also, I think categorizes something which we haven't talked about much on this episode is that a lot of what's selected are just him waving his hand about not caring about the history and just being like, this will work best for my story. But there's definitely a, a very fair critique of him, not only as a human being, which is obvious, but him as an artist too. And when he takes shortcuts that are self-serving is, is discussed in the book as well. You definitely would appreciate the part where Martin says, he sought out to make a great film, Almost, Mel. <laughs> That's not in the book. <laughs> well, then, then we got to revise it one more time, Martin. All right. Okay. One more time. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thanks, Martin Kessler. Everybody, have a great night. Bye.